All right, all right. So now we get to Zeno. And Zeno is interesting. And actually, Zeno was one of my first introductions to philosophy when a friend of mine's father, who was an engineer, gave me one of Zeno's paradoxes, or two, in fact, to solve in my mid-teens. And uh, I worked on them very hard. And I think I came to a decent uh, solution or conclusion. But uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Zeno. And, you know, it's tempting to dive into the cynics, and then the Stoics and so on, Stoicism. But I'm going to do another history of philosophy. What I'm doing here is the history of philosophers. So I'm going to talk about the individuals, and then we'll talk about the larger movements later, later, a few moments later. All right, so he was born in 490 BC in Alea, Italy. Don't know much about the dude. He was a friend and follower of Parmenides, who, of course, we talked about, and was very keen to defend Parmenides' doctrines, right? The the arguments that we talked about in the last show, which was the change is impossible, motion is impossible, and more than one thing is impossible. The monism of everything is one. And so he had the goal and came up with some very cool arguments that assault common sense. <laughs> like, and the assault on common sense is really annoying to me in philosophy, which is not an argument. I'm just telling you where I'm coming from emotionally. It feels like a kind of hijacking. Now, I can understand the assault on common sense that makes sense, right? So when I first learned that the world was a sphere, I could understand that I was simply too close to the earth to see it as round. And I remember when I first flew to Africa to visit my father when I was six years old, believe it or not, went without a parent, went without an adult. When I flew to Africa, I remember... Well, I remember, I remember three things from that flight, believe it or not. So, no, four, four things from that flight. The first was that I had a little uh, British Airways book where I could log my flights. Uh, the second was that I was allowed up into the cockpit, but then flipped, flicked a switch out of curiosity, at which point I was no longer allowed to be up in the cockpit, as you can well imagine. The third thing was I remember looking down from the window over the, um, I guess, Pacific Ocean, and seeing clouds way below me and thinking that they looked like sheep grazing on flat blue grass. I remember that sort of very vividly. I even remember the shape of the clouds now a half century almost later. But sheep grazing on flat blue grass. I remember that. very. And also I remember that the only thing I had to interest me over the course of, of course, what was an endless flight. I do remember it's landing for refueling at some island. And there was audio you could listen to. And I remember listening over and over again to the Emperor's New Clothes, which is a very powerful and, and cool story. So I remember also, of course, I guess five things. I remember trying to look for the curve, right? Like looking for the curve on the ocean and not being sure if I could see it or not. I don't know, we'd be cruising about 30,000 feet or something like that. I think you've got to go a little higher before you see the curve. So that's not an assault on common sense. If you say the moon and the sun look the same size, but you say, well, the sun is a lot further away, that's not an assault on common sense. You can hold a dime at arm's length. It's about the same size as the sun and the moon. And we understand that things that are closer look bigger things. So it's not an assault on common sense. It's That's more of an assault on perspective, right? So, but the assault on common sense, oh, it's, it's just fascinating. It's just fascinating. These philosophers were the postmodernists of their day. And society rebels against philosophers a lot of times because society needs necessary myths, necessary beliefs in order to survive. Now, I believe that those beliefs, I would argue that those beliefs have to be true. They should be true. They ought to be true. But in the absence of true beliefs, false beliefs 
are necessary, right? So the destruction of sense data, the destruction of reason, the destruction of empiricism, the destruction of objectivity are all to release the animal within us, right? Because it is to kill the philosopher's stone at the heart of our humanity. Our soul is our capacity for abstract reason, for universalizations, for concepts, for objectivity, for science and debate and all that. That's, that's our soul. That is what makes us human. And the assault upon the human is to unleash the animal, to turn people into amoral, predatory power seekers, to give us the ethics of an ape with the intelligence of a god. And that is, uh, and so a lot of this stuff was going on at the time, this rejection, this attack on the sense data and on objectivity and empiricism and, and so on. And, you know, Zeno, of course, followed Parmenides in this area. And what Zeno and Parmenides did to sense data, which is to say it's all the deception, everything that you see is different, is actually the same, everything you see is change, is actually not change, is permanence, and everything you see is movement, is an illusion. That was an attack upon the senses. And then when we get to Socrates and Plato, but Socrates in particular, will see that what Zeno and, of course, I'm not, it's not just these two, it's more than just these two, but what Zeno and Parmenides did to the senses, Socrates did to morality. And so the revolt against a lot of these people, you know, philosophers often come to bad ends, and that's not good because free speech, blah, 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 but, <laughs> sorry, that's like the least effective argument I've ever made, free speech, blah, blah, blah. But philosophers come to a bad end because society needs shared beliefs perceived as absolute in order to function. I mean, society needs shared beliefs that are perceived to be absolute in order to function. And it's fine, and, and I would argue it's kind of necessary, to attack the false beliefs, but by God, you better substitute something true. If you take away a medicine, let's say, right, you know the, um, you know the uh, effect where you think you're taking a medicine, but you're taking a sugar pill or a saline solution or something like that, and it turns out that, that this has enormous benefit for you just because you believe, right, the placebo effect, just because you believe something has a good effect, it has a good effect. So if people are genuinely getting better by the millions because of the placebo effect, do you tell them that there's no real medicine? In other words, if there's no real medicine, they'll stop taking the pill and then they will sicken and die. And you will be responsible by telling them that the pill is nothing real, there's no medicine in it. You will be responsible for countless deaths. Hmm, tricky, right? And so it's really, really important. I mean, a very strong case can be made that you develop a real medicine and you only, like a, re a real medicine, let's say it has five times the effectiveness of the placebo pill. Now, if you don't have a real medicine, should you say the accurate and truthful statement that this pill has no medicine in it and it's all in your mind and blah, 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 then if you say to people there's no real medicine in the placebo pill, countless people die and you don't have another medicine for them, the case could very strongly be made, and, you know, maybe I'll work this out from a reason standpoint at one point, but you can at least understand the case could very strongly be made. Don't take away the placebo that is saving the lives of countless people until you have some actual medicine. Don't take away the placebo until you have some actual medicine. Now, the philosophers were about attacking the senses, attacking uh, morals, attacking definitions of virtues and so on, and attacking virtue. Now, they talked a lot about virtue, but they were unable to 
define it because they wouldn't look at the state. They wouldn't look at themselves, particularly in Athens, where pederasty was pretty much the common pastime of the philosophers, right? Pederasty being the uh, sexual activity with young boys, right? Whether it's pedophilia or hebophilia, a lot of times the young boys were considered the most attractive prior to their ability to ejaculate because they were more like females and the females were kind of locked away and weren't allowed out and, and, and so on and were often married off at the age of 14 by arranged marriages and so on. So there was a lot of don't want to look in the mirror stuff there so they couldn't focus on the protection of children because they exploited and abused children in the most horrifying ways. They couldn't look at the state, they couldn't look at childhood as a whole, so they couldn't universalize any ethical system. And so they attacked the evidence of the senses. And this is the funny thing, is that concepts arise from the evidence of the senses, the consistent evidence of consistent matter and energy. Concepts arise from the evidence of the senses, and like an ungrateful child, in a sense, it then turns and attacks the parents who gave it birth. Concepts arise from the senses, and then one of the first things that people do with concepts is use it to attack the senses. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this, some of which are philosophical, some of which are psychological. Let's start with the psychological one. So for a big brain philosopher, the life of the mind is so much more vivid than the evidence of the senses. At the risk of hubris, I will tell you what that's like. I walk down the street, don't remember where I've walked because I'm thinking about something. I come into a room, I have no idea why I came there because I'm thinking about something. And literally, I can be in one room, say, oh, I need something from the other room, know exactly what that thing is, get struck by a thought in the hallway between one room and the next room, get into the next room, have no idea what I'm there for. The life of the mind is so invasive, in a sense, or so all-consuming that it is far easier to imagine that concepts are infinitely bigger and more powerful and more real than sense data. And that's really, really important to understand. You know, people who are just innately musical, you know, they just, you, you can see it, their entire bodies come alive with music, and when for them, music is more vivid than just about any other immediate sense data. I mean, other than the sense data of music and so on. But the life of philosophy is a life of concepts almost completely separated from the senses. So the senses will give rise to concepts, but what the philosopher works with are things that don't exist. But they have to be perceived as the most important things. Reason does not exist. It's the most important thing. Evidence does exist, but it's only a value to a philosopher if, if the evidence is universalized. If you go from things falling to gravity as a concept, as a, as a universal. So you then abstract it from immediate sense data and it trumps everything that is immediate sense data. Immediate sense data is shifting, it is subject to error in misinterpretation. It is mortal, it is in the moment, it's not universal, it's only what I mean. I'm seeing right now the things in this room. I'm not seeing the dark side of the moon uh, album or orbital body. I'm not seeing history. I'm not seeing atoms. I'm not seeing infrared, right? I've got a very limited perspective looking at the things around me. So the consistency of matter gives rise to concepts. And for the philosopher, and I'm not just including moral philosophers here, but for abstract thinkers as a whole, you know, the famous 
these two stories about Adam Smith, who was actually best friends with uh, my ancestor, William Molyneux. But Adam Smith was talking about an important concept with a friend of his and fell into a hole. He was so wrapped up in the concept, he didn't notice a big hole on the path that he was walking. He also famously put butter into his tea. And, you know, this glaze-eyed, unshaven, slightly crazed, abstract-haunted or abstraction-haunted philosopher is is a very real and very powerful cliché or or stereotype. And clichés or stereotypes usually have some basis in, in facts. So you get these concepts from your senses and then you lose yourself in the concepts. You lose yourself. You manipulate things that don't exist. Morality does not exist. Virtue does not exist. Courage does not exist. Physical actions exist. Empirical choices can be verified. Did I go north or south? But just about everything that the philosopher talks about has no sensual reality. And we live in abstract crystal cities of pure thought. That's where we take up our residence. And mere sense reality, mere sense data. If you think back on your... Here's a way to analogize it, because I know this very well. Here's a way to analogize it. When you think back on your earliest memories, there's a unreality or pictorial content or movie content or lack of continuity content in those early memories. They tend to be little vignettes like GIFs or like little moving things. And, and of course, you've thought about them so long and you've maybe heard tales about them. You don't know how much is real. You don't know how much is not. You're pretty certain something happened. But you're not certain how empirical it is. And if somebody were to say to you what happened the hour before your first memory, you wouldn't know. What happened the hour after, you wouldn't know. It's a little fragment in time that's kind of blurred over and occluded and cataracted by the accumulated debris of stories and recollection and reformation, right? Uh, memory is not a photograph. Memory is not a movie. Memory is a narrative, which is why when you give people narratives, they can be very effective at communicating arguments. So when you think back to your earliest memories and how distant they feel and how stopped in time they feel and how limited they feel, and yet vivid. Well, that's how, in general, philosophers view their experience of sense data. It's just kind of foggy and out there, but where they live. And here's the other thing, too. We, we, it's true that we get our abstractions and the patterns of abstractions known as reason and logic and empiricism, scientific math. We get all of that from the evidence of the senses. Ah, but where do philosophers get their instruction? from the senses? No. Zeno in particular, but we'll talk about others. They do not get their instruction from sense data. They get their instruction from other philosophers. They get their instruction from books, from arguments, from debates, from poetry, from art. And there's a detonation when you first encounter a delicious concept in the mind of a thinker, in the mind of a philosopher. And we're all in that category, all, all who listen to this. There's a detonation that occurs where sweet reason comes cascading down to you from the very heavens it seems or it feels. And you get 
x-ray vision. You get to see through time. You get to see into the heart of things. You get to look through people. You get to look deep into yourself, and you get lost in visions. Now, visions should be rational. I mean, there's a vision called a scientific conjecture or hypothesis, and that vision needs to be tested if it's valid to reason and evidence. It's accepted over time. But you have to think that concepts are more real than things. And this question of are concepts more real than things is really what we've been talking about. Is the collective anything other than a label for a group of individuals? Does the collective have any properties that deny the properties of the individual? Is there a collective called literate that denies the properties of any individual literate? Well, of course, create a rule, create an exception. So you create a country, you call it a country, and the collective called the country, and the people who rule it have rights completely the opposite of inhabitants, right? One group gets to tax. One group gets to impose their will. One group gets to pass laws. One group gets to start wars. One group gets to draft and enslave people. The other group doesn't. So you got a group of individuals, and then you have a collective, or a, a collective concept called the country, and then you have people who speak for that collective concept, which, of course, being a mere concept, has no words or language of its own, and they claim to speak for the collective concept. So the ruler says, do this for the good of the country. There was an old Victorian saying about women who didn't want to have sex, but they needed kids, lie back and think of England. Just lie back and think of the glory of England. And so you have a group of individuals, you create a collective concept, which can't speak for itself, and then you say, you must obey this collective concept of which I am merely the spokesperson. Hey, man, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you the facts. That's very powerful stuff when you understand it. So if concepts, as I've always argued from the very first show I ever did, if concepts are imperfectly derived from instances, then there can be no contradiction between the properties of the individual and the properties of the concept. If you have a concept called human beings, you can't include the ability to turn to vapor for a certain group of human beings and say it's completely denied to everyone else and put everyone under the same category of human beings. As I've always talked about, you can't create a category called mammals and then throw someone cold-blooded, some animal cold-blooded in there and say it's still a mammal. It's like, no, no, the definition of mammal is warm-blooded. You can't throw a cold-blooded animal in there and claim that it's warm-blooded, right? And so the collective cannot contradict the properties of any of its members. It's imperfectly derived. Imperfectly derived. I'm sorry for the awkwardness of the phrase. I couldn't think of a better one. Probably is one. Maybe I'll come across one. But imperfectly derived means that if there's a contradiction between the instance and the concept, the concept has to be revisited. It has to be revised. So this question of what is real, politically creating a concept that can contradict the properties of its members, a country whose rulers can initiate violence against members who are not allowed to initiate violence against each other or the rulers, that's creating a concept whose members have opposite properties from other members. And it's not just they have different properties or incompatible properties, right? You could have a collection of numbers and throw in a banana. A banana is not the opposite of a number. It's just not in the category called number, unless you count one banana, one banana, two banana, three banana, four. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's really, really important to understand that politically, if you say that concepts trump instances, then you can create violent obligations 
imposed upon citizens by rulers and classify everyone as a human being. But then you have to create this collective concept called the country or the the deity or the class or the race or whatever it is that trumps individual members, trumps the properties of individual members because there's no point creating a collective concept for political profit if you can't exclude yourself from the rules of that. And this is why UPB is so, it's so powerful because UPB erases, it, it has a category called non-initiation of force and it excludes no one. Universally preferable behavior, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not rob, thou shalt not rape. And there's no exceptions. There's no concept that is invented that excludes certain people. And that's the synchronon, the culmination of moral philosophy, of course, in my view. So I've been pumping it so hard. And I was also very aware that if I viewed, as I did at the time, if I viewed religion and mere government fiat as incomplete or at sometimes anti-rational substitutes for moral philosophy, for true moral philosophy, rational moral philosophy, universal moral philosophy. But these things were placebos that kept society in order. Then to attack the placebos, which kills countless people and not provide true medicine, well, I mean, I talked about this in one of my books. You don't drive people out of a church. That's the only shelter in a terrible storm so they can go and die in the woods. If you don't have a new place to get them to, you don't destroy the only shelter they have. So, philosophically, it is a very tempting power grab to say that concepts are more real than instances because it gives you the capacity to create exclusions for individuals in the concept. And that always leads to tyranny. And this is my master's thesis from 30 years ago. It always leads to tyranny. When you create concepts that can contradict the properties of each individual member, then you have to create a special group of philosopher kings or priests or shamans or witch doctors or you name it, or politicians for that, or lawmakers, who can read, understand, and have access to this universal that contradicts the properties of each individual member, this concept. And then what they can do is they can impose that upon you, impose some rule upon you, exploit you, steal from you, enslave you, draft you, and you can't do it in reverse. And they say, well, no, no, you see, it's because I have access to this special super concept that I can't possibly explain to you. And, of course, for and, and it's not like every philosopher in ancient Athens was a pederast, but a lot of them were, and it was tragically common, and, and Socrates certainly did it according to reports, and so they had to create an exclusion for themselves. And so they didn't want to stick with bare, bald sense reality, giving rise to the concepts and not allowing any concepts to contradict reality because then there would be universal consistency. That's bad for them, the political masters that they have to appease to, to stay alive. That's bad for their own morals, because they did prey upon children who can't consent to sexual activity. Children cannot consent to sexual activity. 
And whether the children are 8 or 10 or 12 or 14 doesn't particularly matter. Children can't. Well, of course, it was a rape culture in many ways because we've got 14-year-olds uh, with their arranged marriages. So, yeah, it's it's philosophically and psychologically and politically, it's the great temptation. that The Satan of philosophy is concepts that can contradict instances. I know that sounds, really sounds kind of ridiculous, like the worst Bible verse ever, right? But the great Satan, the great temptation to twist reason for the cause of power is to create concepts that can contradict the properties of individual members. Because then you can create exceptions and oppositions to the moral rules, to the rules of reality. And then you have a, quote, justification for the imposition of evil. It's not evil. Right? It's not evil because you've got an exception. It's not evil. So that is the great temptation. Uh, and Zeno and Parmenides and to some degree Socrates, which I'll get to. I mean, Socrates is going to be a long one because uh, he is, uh, as Nietzsche points out, every single philosopher wrestles with the ugly Greek pederast from 2,500 years ago. So, Okay, so let's get uh, to Zeno. And here, here's an interesting thing, right? So Zeno was born of a wealthy family and was a merchant. And I explained this to my daughter, and I wanted to explain what merchants were. And she's like, I know what merchants are. And I was like, oh, it's Minecraft. It's like, well, merchant could mean opening a shop, but in this case, merchant meant trading, right? And I did actually say he had a pet llama just to tweak the Minecraft thing, but uh, he didn't. At least I don't think so. So trade was very difficult. You know, one of the things, I think it was Pascal who invented the mathematics necessary for insurance. And of course, you needed to be able to gather a lot of data on insurance. So ship voyages that were insurable were much more, and what, it was much, you were much better able to pursue trade if you could insure, but you couldn't insure until you had the right math and also the right data to figure out the odds and probabilities of survival versus non-survival. So back in the day, if you, you know, poured your wealth into, you know, buying goods and shipping goods to make a profit and the ship sank or, or ran aground and the, or, or the cargo was destroyed, there was some storm that had thrown it overboard, or it was taken by pirates or the larger pirates called the Navy, could be any number of things, but you would lose everything. There was no insurance back in the day. Now, this, this, I mean, this did happen to, uh, to Zeno. He, he poured all of his wealth into a ship and a voyage and to trade. And there was a terrible shipwreck, and he lost everything. And he ended up with, with nothing. So he's wandering. I think it's in Athens. He's wandering in Athens. And he just wanders into a bookstore, you know, when you're burned, you got nothing. <laughs> and he's just in the bookstore. And he's just leafing through stuff. I guess, I don't even know if he's, he's waterlogged at this point. He's leafing through stuff and he comes across a, book, across a book of philosophy. And as I said, there's this cloudburst, this lightning strike into your mind when you have an affinity for concepts, a capacity, a great capacity for concepts when you reach your first true appreciation or you get your first examination of concepts. You know, there are people who, you know, you, you, you talk, I used to talk to when I was at the National Theatre School, the sister school was the ballet school. And I would talk to the dancers in between their endless puffs of cigarettes because they couldn't gain a single ounce. But I would talk to them and I would say, you know, wow, you 
you you became a dancer. Has this been doing that? A lot of them been doing this. They were, I guess, eighteen or maybe twenty, eighteen, nineteen, or twenty, at this age. And I said to them, "When did you first get interested in dance?" And you know, there were lots of answers. But by far the most common answer was, you know, my uh, my mom had a show on television, and I saw a dancer, and I just I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, and I was like, "That's what I'm going to do my life. That's what I'm going to do with my life." That's it, baby. And that's because they obviously had an affinity for and a capacity for, and, you know, our, our tentacles of possibility are always sniffing out for something that's going to, that they can wrap themselves around, right? Our potential is like, uh, you know, you see these octopi, uh, they float across the coral reef and their arms or tentacled arms are kind of slipping, uh, slipping at every nook and cranny looking for some crustacean or some starfish or something to eat. Well, our potential, our possibilities are always sniffing around for the one thing that's going to be the lightning strike of, oh, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And when I first started reading philosophy, when I first got, you know, the paradoxes of Zeno, which we'll get to, I was like, oh, man, couldn't do anything better with my life. I couldn't do anything better with my life. And here's another example of just concepts or ideas or abstractions being more real than things. And, and as a novelist, I mean, as a poet to a smaller degree, as a playwright to a greater degree, but less than a novel, because a play will have a table read. I've produced a play or two, and so it comes to life in a way. But a novel, you, I mean, you, you really genuinely, completely and totally have to believe that these people exist. You have to love them, even for their flaws. You have to respect the integrity of their character and not force them to do things that go against their natures, that, that violate their their will. You know, don't use them as, as props for an ideology. So when I write a novel, and in fact, I had to rewrite, I had to write, actually, there was, in Just Poor, just last year, I wrote the novel over 20 years ago. No, God, over 30 years ago, about 30 years ago. Anyway, I had to, re- I had to write a new chapter because there was a chapter that was missing. I don't know what happened to it. I don't even know if I ever wrote it so long ago now, but there was a chapter that was missing about Mary's progress. And I had to sit down and resurrect these characters and write again in a world I hadn't visited creatively for 30 years. Now, and, and when I was working last fall, when I was working on the future, and there were scenes that moved me enormously, scenes that enraged me, scenes that, like I'm dictating this, the scene with the, the two brothers, uh, and the mother, I mean, you know, tears are flowing down my face while I'm writing. I had to pause because the voice dictation software wasn't picking up my voice because I was so choked up. And that's just where you have to be. It has to be as real and as moving as a dream, although you know you're awake. So in that case, I'm writing about a society 500 years in the future that I will never visit, never know, never experience. Uh, people who are alive, with two exceptions, people who are alive in the future could never possibly be alive now. But you, ha- it has to be completely real to you. It has to be completely vivid to you. And I, I had particular music that I had for particular characters which helped evoke and keep me on their path, keep the integrity of the characters. Without the integrity of the character, there's no uh, believability for you in the story. And... I couldn't honestly, if, if you were to ask me, you know, what was the weather when I was writing, I wouldn't have a clue. I wouldn't have a clue. 
even though I'm writing and there's a window, right? But never close. Because what's going on in my head is far more vivid than anything that's happening in reality. So, yeah, Zeno and Parmenides and others, they live in their heads. And they are selected for our memories because they never try to universalize completely and absolutely. And, you know, as we go through the history of philosophy, uh, philosophers, sorry, as we go through the history of philosophers, hopefully you'll see what uh, UPP is all about, that it's the first. It's the first true universalization. And uh, it's really only possible because the gatekeepers were removed for a certain amount of time, right? The gatekeepers were removed for a certain amount of time. Um, I really, you needed 2006 to 2016. That was really when the gatekeepers were released, and boy, did we ever get a lot of information through before the gates came clanging down again. So with regards to uh, Zeno, again, he's one of these people that we really don't know much about. So yeah, a student of Parmenides, and he created arguments for the impossibility of change and motion. And these paradoxes, again, were so famous that I was handed one at 14 or 15 by my friend's father, which helped really stimulate my interest in philosophy. And so he came up with these wild, crazy paradoxes that went directly against, you know, like your your senses are like the Cossacks on horses and Zeno's paradoxes are like the ditches and the stakes that go through the hearts of the horses and kill them. He says, look, your every day, your every day is an illusion. Your every day is an illusion. And that is, I mean, epistemologically, that's a kind of madness. Metaphysically, it's wildly self-contradictory. But, okay, so, so here's one. Let's get us into the content here. So, let's say you've got uh, a handful of sand, right? And you take one grain of sand and you drop it on the ground. Does it make a sound? No. At least you can't hear a sound, right? But if you drop you, you drop the whole thing, it makes that whispery sound, right? So if a single grain doesn't make a sound when it falls, how could it be possible that many grains of sand falling would make a sound? You know, if, if one man is silent and all men are silent... Let's say all men are silent, a thousand men doesn't make a sound, right? If no one is singing, a thousand people not singing doesn't produce singing. Now, of course, we understand all of this. We understand that just because you couldn't hear it doesn't mean that there's no sound. You know, it's like that old nonsense thing that's supposed to really confuse people. A tree falls in a forest, there's nobody here to hear it. There's nobody there to hear it. Does it make a sound? Well, it depends. It depends if you say sound is what impinges on someone's ear. Well, then no. If you define sound as vibrations in the air, then yes. So, yeah, it's one of these things, right? So, he says, look, this is a paradox. Now, again, we know, again, they didn't have, I don't know, recordings that they could amplify and things like that. So, we understand all of that. And he had better ones, but that's sort of the first one, right? And he says, look, if reality is contradictory, we can only find truth in well, the logos, abstract reasoning, uh, the examination of concepts independent of 
the demands of the census and so on, right? So he's basically saying, look, if reality is contradictory, then the census exists independent of reality and are sometimes opposed to reality, right? So if one man not singing doesn't produce a song, but a thousand men not singing produces a song, then reality is contradictory and therefore, concepts can contradict reality because reality concepts are pure and that, right? So he's he's you slander the senses to turn concepts into gods. Right? You you slander the senses to turn concepts into gods. So he was. I mean, Aristotle called him the inventor of dialectics. He's certainly an early contributor to uh, dialectics. So dialectics. Um, I mean, we all know this from the Hegelian dialectic, right? So, Dialectics are, I mean, one of the famous ones is uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, which is total crap, and we'll get to that when we get to Hegel and all of that. But uh, you you propose a contradiction, and through working through that contradiction, you will get to the truth, right? So the famous one of Socrates is he asks a soldier what is courage, and the soldier says, standing your ground on the battlefield, that's courage. And Socrates says, well, what if there's a horn that's been What if you're supposed to retreat? And everyone's begging you to retreat because they don't want to leave you there, but you don't, you stand your ground because there's an overwhelming force coming, and then your friends have to stay and help you, and everyone gets killed, right? But so there's a soldier standing his ground. That's not courageous. That's foolhardy. That's selfish. That's self-destructive. Whatever you'd want to call it, but we wouldn't think that that was right because the virtue shouldn't result in the death of your friends for no purpose, right? If your friends die for no purpose, how can that be virtue? And if courage is a virtue, how can actions that lead to the death of your friends for no purpose be a virtue? All right, so that's, I mean, that's Socratic dialogue, but dialectics as a whole is, you know, propose uh, um, propose a rule, find a contradiction, work through it, and all of that, right? So, and uh, Plato, so we go Parmenides to Zeno, and then Zeno to Plato. And Plato was so enamored of Zeno that Zeno is actually a character in one of Plato's dialogues. So, here's paradoxes, right? So it's a claim that contradicts or seems contradictory to common sense, but you can't disprove it, right? So if you say, well, everybody who looks at brown sees a different shade of brown, therefore there's no such thing as brown, how do you argue against that? And again, in the absence of scientific instrumentation, which extracts sense data without the use of the senses, right? So everybody looks at brown, yeah, we, everybody sees a slightly different shade, the different eyes, maybe cataracts, you know, maybe everyone's at a slightly different angle, the light's bouncing off. So everyone's going to see a slightly different shade of gray, but you point uh, a spectrometer at gray and you get a wavelength of the color and that's the objective. Right? So without science, everything had to come through the senses and yes, everyone sees, so what is color, man? Everyone sees a different color. And yet you still say brown, right? So, And, and the senses are like good enough. You know, if I say, you know, hand me that can of brown paint and there's like a can of blue and brown paint, we don't have to see exactly the same brown. But the senses are good enough. Otherwise, I don't know, we would have evolved with spectrometers and numbers in our brains. <laughs> like, you don't need it. It's it's not necessary. It's good enough. It's good. Like when you're hunting a deer, yeah, the deer's camouflaged. I mean, your eyes only need to be good enough to find the deer. They don't need to be good enough to give that Terminator-like outline of the deer and blah, 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 right? So the senses, just, they, they just have to be good enough to serve our survival. They don't have to be perfect. Now, concepts can be perfect and absolute, and this is why people who are into concepts 
are into this crystalline world of perfect purity, like geometry, like numbers, right? Two coconuts. Well, the two coconuts are slightly different weights and slightly different shapes, and they're not. Too, but the two, the number two, is identical. It's like a complete mirror. A photocopy, even a photocopy, is not perfect, right? So in the in the realm of concepts, everything's perfect, universal, crystalline, abstract, blah, 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 right? And in the world of the senses, there's variations, there's some subjectivity there, right? So, and people who are like, well, I want the truth. It's like, well, the truth is abstract and it's perfect and everything to do with the senses is a smudge on the perfect mirror of my concept, God. Anyway, uh, sorry, I mean, <laughs> making a mocking voice is not an argument, but it is kind of fun. Okay, so let's talk about some of his paradoxes. The arrow paradox. Oh, dare I say it? This one is quite arrowing. Okay. Think of an arrow flying through the air. This is how it was presented to me 51 or almost 52 years ago. So an arrow flying through the air. Let's say it travels 100 feet in a second. So it travels 50 feet in half a second. It travels 25 feet in a quarter of a second. And you just keep slicing it down and down and down. And at some point when it's infinitely small time slash, it's not moving. Right, infinitely small time slice is infinitely slow motion. Infinitely slow motion is not moving. And so, how can the arrow be moving if every freeze frame of an infinitely small time slice has the arrow not moving? How can motion be composed of non-motion? Whoa, man, you just blew my mind. And my solution back in the day, my solution was to say, well, there's no such thing as infinitely slow. And there's no such thing as time stopping because time is change. Time is a measurement of change. There's no such thing as infinitely slow. And even if there were, infinitely slow is not the same as not moving. And it's true that if something is not moving, it will take an infinity of time, in other words, it never will, to go from A to B. And something that is infinitely slow will take an infinity of time to get from A to B. But that's how we know there's no such thing as infinitely slow. And even if there were, it's not the same as not moving. So now there's a, a slightly more sophisticated back of the napkin thing that you can work out. You can just draw this out. You just get a big piece of paper, draw a big square, right? And say, I did this with my daughter just yesterday. You get a big square, say divide the square in half. Okay, it's half, right? And then say divide that half, just one half, into a quarter. And then an eighth, a sixteenth, a thirty-second, a sixty-fourth, a one-twenty-eighth, a two-fifty-six, a five-twelve, a one-twenty-eight, a twenty, a twenty-forty, a twenty. So you can go all the way up, right? One-twenty-eight, twenty-forty-six, four-zero-nine-six, eight-one-nine-two. Anyway, all the binary stuff, right? Now, no matter how much you subdivide that one half of the square, the area will still equal the other half of the square. In other words, you can't say, well, look, if I take one half a square and subdivide it into infinitely small pieces, then it disappears and there's no square. There's no half of that square. It doesn't work. The, whatever you subdivide, the area has to equal where you started. Right? You, get a, you cut a piece of paper into a million little pieces. When you, if you were able to magically reassemble it back, it would be the same size as when you started. Right? You can't get rid of the area of something by subdividing it now okay you could say well if i saw you know some of the sawdust like we're talking about concept concepts here right and mathematically i mean you, you simply cannot subdivide something and eliminate it by subdividing it and so if you take this time slice right so you say well half 
you know, half a second is, is 50 feet for the arrow, and you keep slicing it, you never get to no motion. In the same way that when you subdivide half a square into whatever tiny bits you want mathematically, when you add them back up, they will still equal the area that you started. So you can't eliminate half the square by saying, well, I'm going to divide it into infinitely small pieces. Well, the infinitely small pieces, infinitely small pieces times infinity gets your original area. So uh, that's uh, uh, kind of important to, uh, to focus on, right? So let's look at the Achilles paradox. So he says, okay, motion is absurd. Okay, Achilles versus a tortoise. Achilles is a famous warrior and athlete. So let's say the tortoise has a totally early start. But Achilles is a tortoise in the air, right? Achilles has to, to win the race, Achilles has to overtake the tortoise. Now, so let's say Achilles runs a certain amount of distance to catch up to the tortoise, right? So Achilles continues. So, But the tortoise has also moved, right? So let's say the tortoise has gone 50 feet and the tortoise is moving real slow. So Achilles gets to 50 feet, but the tortoise has moved another five feet, so he hasn't caught it up. And so as soon as... Achilles reaches the next spot, the tortoise has moved ahead. But here's the problem, is that you're simply slicing down time. Again, you're just slicing down time, making it smaller and smaller and smaller. Yet we all know that Achilles is going to overtake the tortoise, right? So if you hold time constant, but if you start slicing down time, then you can slow Achilles down and slow Achilles down and slow Achilles down for sure. It's like slowing down a song and saying, well, a song never ends. Songs can never end because if you slow down songs, they never end. It's like, well, they will end unless you stop. Now, if you stop, you've eliminated motion. Like you're no longer in a situation of motion, right? So you slow down a song, slow down a song, slow down a song. You grab the slider in VLC or whatever, right? Keep slowing down the song. So the song goes from three minutes to five minutes to 10 minutes or whatever it is, right? Okay. Now, if you pause the song, you can say this well the song will never end because I paused it right so he's what he's trying to do is pause things and say this the song is infinite because but if you simply slow it down to infinity it will end infinity but ending infinity is not the same as not ending so anyway sort of get on all of this kind of stuff so yeah these these plurality the change things are and there've been a lot of discussion in philosophy and I I'm you know, I'm fully aware that it's as annoying as burrs on the ball sack for me to say, oh, this is just silly arguments and so on, right? But the reason I say that is that concepts can't trump evidence. Now, in Zeno, Parmenides, and other people, Plato, concepts trump senses. If there's a contradiction between the senses and the concept, the, sense, the concept can win. doesn't necessarily always mean that it does win, but the concept can trump the senses. Whereas if I say sense, uh, concepts are imperfectly derived from evidence, from, from the senses, then in any contradiction between the senses and the concept, and this is my very first in, in my old office way long ago, 16 years, right? Understanding concepts, right? Right at the beginning. This is not something I've developed later. This is my very first show. Ah, I'll link it below. So if concepts are derived from the senses then concepts can never contradict the senses. That's always been my, my belief, my understanding, right? And that's just because I don't want to be a freaking hypocrite. I don't want to say that concepts contradict the senses when I use the senses in order to get food and drink and sleep and water and survive and live and all that. I'm just not going to bite the hand that feeds me. It's just ungrateful and wretched and all that. 
I mean, in uh, in the psychodrama of the philosophers, reality is the parents, and concepts are their vanity. <laughs> so we'll talk about that as we as we sort of go forward. So the reason that I just rolled my eyes at this stuff, and it's like, no, it's not true, and right reasoned it out that way, is because as a purebred empiricist from early mid-teens onwards, from a pure empiricist, I was like, oh no, um, arrows hit their targets. Oh no, Achilles overtakes the tortoise. And I don't care what mental frackery you're going to throw at me. It's just the way it is. It's, you know, like there's this old myth that the scientists don't know how a bee flies, but the bee flies anyway. I mean, you lecture a bee and say you can't fly, and the bee says, okay, well, I'll stop flying. The bee's like, no, I'm going to fly. If I'm flying and your theory says I can't, I'm not going to stop flying. There's just something wrong with your theory, so go back to the drawing board, right? So, yeah, in terms of metaphysics, what is reality, what is time, he's all of this, right? And Aristotle, I don't think, give a great answer to Zeno. Um, Plato offered the same kind of thing. It's a little tough without modern instrumentation. It's a little tough without uh, maybe some modern mathematical developments and so on. And the other thing, too, these guys are all very well versed in geometry. And in geometry, you can get a perfect circle in the world. You can't, whatever you draw, right, the rough edges and all that. And you can get a perfect triangle, a perfect square, a perfect cube. And so when you start to live in the world of concepts, concepts are pure and perfect. Reality is sketchy and messy. And so it's very easy to... But you see, I, I view concepts as imperfect descriptions of things. And what I mean by that is, yes, we have a concept of a perfect sphere, let's say a perfect sphere, right? Now, every sphere you make in the world is going to have imperfections relative to the concept. Now, what you can do is you can either say the mathematical mathematical description of the sphere is perfect and the sphere you make in the world is imperfect. I don't view it that way at all. Because concepts are derived from the senses, the mathematical description, I just use, use a line, you draw a line. You can use a rule, it doesn't matter. You draw a line. Okay, mathematically, a line is an infinitesimally small, in a sense, concept of from A to B, right? And so you draw a line, it's going to have imperfections. You draw a line in the sand, you draw a line on a piece of paper, you draw a line on a computer screen, you draw a line with a laser, it's going to have imperfections, right? Now, the concept line, or the concept cube, or the concept sphere, or dodecahedron, or Googleplex, whatever it is, the concept is imperfectly derived from the instance. So the instance is perfect. The concept is imperfect because it doesn't have imperfections. Right? So the sense data is, has ragged edges. Right? So the concept line is inferior to the actual line because the concept line doesn't have ragged edges. I know this is kind of tricky and kind of trippy, but it's really, really important. A, a circle in geometry is perfect. Why? Because it doesn't exist. In other words, you've taken a circle, you've described it mathematically, and you've removed all of the raggedness, the imperfections, the whatever, right? Well, that means that the concept circle is imperfect. Because it's perfect. Because it doesn't describe anything in reality, but it's merely an abstraction of the properties of the circle you see in reality, the circle you can draw. And the reason that it's imperfect is because it doesn't contain any imperfections, which is what a circle actually is. A circle in the world creates imperfections, right? 
you ever been on a hike and you go to those, uh, it's more of a cylinder, I suppose, but you go hiking. And I remember doing this in my mid-teens when I went to visit a friend of my father's who's a marine biologist or was, I suppose. And he took me on this unbelievably exhausting hike to find the source of a river for some reason. And I remember him catching electric eels and shocking fish to, to study them and so on and also getting enormously drunk and banging a saucepan against the uh, the wall of a hut. But he took me to these waterfalls and the waterfalls have little eddies and swirls where pebbles get caught and the pebbles eventually grind these cylinders down into the into the rock. It's, it's a wild process. It goes on forever, I suppose. And so these cylinders are perfect. Now, you describe the cylinders, you measure them and so on, you have a concept called the cylinder. Well, the cil- cylinder is imperfect. In other words, its only value is to create another cylinder, which is perfect because it's in, in reality. What's in reality is perfect. Our concepts are imperfect because they're templates simply used to create other things in the world. So you've got the idea for a bridge that has no imperfections. You have a blueprint for a bridge which has some imperfections, but fewer imperfections than the bridge. But the bridge is the perfect purpose of what you're doing. Therefore, the bridge is more perfect than the blueprint because you can use it. And the blueprint is more perfect than the concept of the blueprint, which is perfect in terms of no ragged edges, no problems, no discoloring, no rust, no no load, whatever, right? But because the whole purpose of the concepts is to produce the thing, the thing is perfect. The object is perfect. You draw a circle, the idea of the circle is imperfect because it never accurately describes the circle that is. And because it is a means to an end, and the end is of higher priority than the means, right? If you want to drive to the beach because you want to get to the beach, the purpose of your drive is to get to the beach. The drive is less valuable than the beach. So saying the drive is perfect in in achieving my goals, but the beach is imperfect in achieving my goals, well, the only reason you're driving is to get to the beach, the drive is less valuable than the beach. And if the only purpose of concepts is to produce things in the world, then the concepts are less important and are of a lower order of priority and purpose than the things in the world that you actually create. Now, of course, if all you're creating is arguments and confusion, then I can see, right? I've always been trying to give practical, useful things to do in uh, life uh, as a whole, right? There's a purpose, right? Happiness or virtue, integrity, and so on, right? So... I would um, really argue strongly that if there's a contradiction between the argument and empirical sense data, a contradiction, right? So saying that the world is round doesn't contradict your sense data. It simply says that you're too close to see it, right? If I put, I don't know, two eggs over your eyes and say you can only see with your peripheral vision, that's not a description of your eyes, but rather the occlusion of the eggs. So if somebody says to you, that the world is both fire and ice simultaneously, well, that doesn't accord with your sense data, that doesn't accord with reason, therefore it's false, right? Can't be fire and ice simultaneously. Despite what Anthony Hopkins says in that rather mediocre movie. So, if it doesn't, if it opposes your sense data, it's invalid. Because concepts are imperfectly derived from instances, and instances come to us through sense data. We see the arrow, fly through the air and hit the target. We see Achilles overtake the tortoise. So that's the fact. That's the perfect, right? The sense data is the perfect. The concepts are the shadows. The concepts don't exist. The concepts are imperfect because they don't manifest. They're not real. And the real trumps the imaginary. The facts, the senses, empiricism trumps the concept. 
individuals, Trump the collective, and all are subject to the same rules. There are no exceptions, no reversals in morality, in philosophy, any more than there would be in physics or biology. All right. Thank you so much. Next, we take on Socrates, Socrates. And boy, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be something else, man. It's going to be something else. Get ready for some serious rants. Okay. Freedomain.com slash donate. Please, please, please help me out. And uh, I really appreciate the kind words that people have given me about uh, this series. And uh, if you have any other suggestions or um, proposals or, or criticisms, please let me know. Freedomain.locals.com. Bye.